God, what a sweet, sweet privilege that we've just had enjoying a beautiful picture and a beautiful application of your deliverance. Lord, we know that through the finished work of Christ that we've been delivered through the ultimate flood of death and through the terrible mire of the grave. Lord, we celebrate that together. Thankful for this morning for two dads that are loving and shepherding their children so well and a young husband who's tending to and shepherding his wife so well. What a beautiful, beautiful testimony. We love you so much, Lord. We turn the rest of this morning over to you as an offering. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, he said these words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the year 1630, a Puritan named John Winthrop preached a sermon aboard the ship, the Arabella, on its way to the new land. The title of the sermon was called A Model of Christian Charity. The sermon was delivered to his fellow colonists-to-be in advance of their landing in Massachusetts Bay Colony. This sermon is best known for the phrase, City on a Hill. Fast forward a few hundred years. John F. Kennedy spoke these words in 1961. I've been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates on the flagship Arbella, I said Arabella, Arbella, 331 years ago, as they too faced the task of building a new government on a perilous frontier. Pay attention to the word he just used, a new government. We must always consider, he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Today the eyes of all people are truly upon us and our governments in every branch, at every level, national, state, local, must be as a city upon a hill, constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. For we are setting out upon a voyage in 1961 no less hazardous than, the under, than that undertaken by the Arbella in 1630. We are committing ourselves to tasks of statehood no less fantastic than that of governing the Massachusetts Bay Colony. In 1984, Ron Reagan spoke these words. In 1984 and in 1989, he referred to the city on the hill. He said, I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God blessed, teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace, a city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. If there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to go there. That's how I saw it, and I see it still. While stirring 
Imagining hearing those words from John F. Kennedy and imagining hearing them, I didn't, wasn't paying attention at that age, hearing them from Ron Reagan, I could have heard them. While stirring, John F. Kennedy and Ron Reagan, all due respect, missed the point. The city on the hill is not a government. The city on the hill is not the United States of America. Whether you're excited this week of the outcome of the election and have tremendous hope for the next four years, or whether you're disappointed, I'm ready to move to Canada. Whatever your disposition may be, you need to know that the hope of the world will never be and has never been a government, nor a president. The hope of the world is the church. The hope of the world is the people of God bearing a bright and shiny message on a hilltop. Man, I want to encourage you this morning, whether you're excited or disappointed, let's enjoy that we are part of that hope, that we bear the message, that we bear the good news, and it's our Savior who is seated and reigning and ruling and in session right now. Let's open in prayer this morning. Lord, I'm thankful for a Puritan preacher that rallied colonists with a message of, message of diversity and acts of kindness by the rich toward the poor, with the encouragement to be a city on a hill as the church landing in Massachusetts. Lord, I pray we this morning, whatever our disposition might be in wake of the election, excited or discouraged, that we can ultimately find our hope not in a new president, an old president, not in a new government, an old government, a big government, a small government, but that we can find our hope and our identity and our meaning and our purpose as part of the city on the hill, as part of a bright and shiny and salty and aromatic people. Lord, stir us with that reality. Steady us, whoever is in office. Give us deep roots, whatever the next four years might hold, or the next 40. Or this morning, we want to pray for President Obama. Lord, I pray in the next four years for two things to happen. One, I pray that he will come under severe conviction over his low view of the unborn. I pray that he will not be able to sleep at night. I pray that you will roust him out of bed and roust his hard heart toward the unborn to be fleshly and tender toward them. Lord, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that would work, but I know that you're capable and we know that you're able and we beg for that right now in the next four. Secondly, Lord, I pray for conviction over the redefinition of what you defined as marriage with a man and a woman. Lord, I pray that you will bring him and other decision makers under conviction that they've redefined what you've defined or made an attempt at it. And that they are not walking in your ways and your wisdom. Lord, we beg for that as the people of God this morning. We pray, sure, for our economy. We pray for wisdom in foreign domestic matters of all sorts. We pray for your wisdom in health care. We pray for all those things to be influenced. But this morning... More than anything, we beg for the lives of the unborn.
And secondly, we pray that you would redeem the definition that you placed on marriage as a man and a woman. Secondly, this morning, Lord, we want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for FBC Greenville. I want to pray for Terry, for his family, for his marriage. Pray that you would guard his heart from ever going through the motions and just getting a job done week after week. That you would keep his heart soft toward you, tender and attentive, joyful and broken, all at the same time. Pray that you would roust him each week with a life-altering message so that First Baptist Church Greenville would grow in faith, grow in obedience, grow in potency, grow more and more salty and more bright and aromatic as we pray the same for us. Or we're thankful for the privilege of serving this community with this church. We pray that all the churches that enjoy and preach your son will cheer for your greatness in and through them. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you'll be enjoyed and that your son especially, as we see your plan that's been played out and is being played out over the ages. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This morning, we're continuing a series of sermons that has two more Sundays after today in the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. Last week, we had a sort of, sort of part A of a two-part sermon focusing on verse 5 and the first part of verse, uh, verse 6. For the sake of context, I'm going to read the entire first six verses, and then we're going to climb into, into verse 5 and the first part of verse 6 again and unpack something this morning that will round out last week's message. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's what we've been doing the last few weeks. Let's just consider who he is and what he's done. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There are three things that are developed in verses 5 and verse First part of verse 6, first of all, contrasting Moses as faithful servant with Christ as faithful son. Contrasting roles. Then they're contrasted positionally. Contrasting Moses who served in God's house as a servant with Christ who served over God's house as a son. And then there's a statement made regarding Moses that leaves sort of a pregnant blank that we get to fill in for the sake of emphasis. I love the Hebrews preacher because he's so linear. 
Here's what he says about Moses. Moses is faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And then there's that pregnant void of what he doesn't say about Christ that screams, if you really study the passage, that screams the reality that Christ became the things that were to be spoken later. Moses testified to them, and Christ fulfilled them and became those things. The Word truly became flesh and dwelt among us. Last week, we considered one of the things that Moses testified to. The whole first five books of our Old Testament are one big testimony of Christ. And they're little illustrations and stories throughout that all point to Christ. Last week, we just grabbed the first one. It's called the Proto-Euangelion from Genesis chapter 3, where the, the judgment is meted out on the serpent. And before he even pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve, he gives the good news indicating that he's already got a plan before he's pronounced judgment on man. And within the consequences and the judgment on the serpent is the encouragement that Eve's offspring will have enmity with the offspring of the serpent and will ultimately crush his head. And that's what he did in the cross. Man, we enjoyed that together last week. We enjoyed the anticipation that we saw as early as Eve. Right in the Hebrew, this translated directly. Not like our Bibles say, translations, most of them say, I've gotten myself a man with the help of the Lord. But what they say directly in the Hebrew is I've gotten the man God, the God man. I've gotten the answer to get us back in the garden. And Adam turns and renames his wife. I'm not going to call you woman anymore. It's kind of impersonal. Now I'm going to call you Eve because you're going to be the mother of life. But then Cain kills Abel. You see, well, that's not going to work out. Maybe it'll be Seth. And it's not Seth. Seth is the appointed one. He gives birth to Enosh. Later we see Lamech thinking maybe it's going to be Noah. We saw this picture last week of generations and thousands of years of anticipation toward the Christ child. We enjoyed that together, and ultimately we enjoyed what we're going to enjoy the whole month of December, the Advent, where Mary and Joseph held that promised offspring of Eve. Held him. Simeon and Anna, Simeon and Anna held him too. Man, what sweet good news. Last week, we considered Jesus as the head crusher, as testified by Moses. This week, we're going to consider something else Moses said about Jesus. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. As I said before, the whole first five books of the Old Testament are one big testimony. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses prophesies about the coming shepherd. And it's beautiful. It's where we're going to spend the rest of this morning unpacking this and considering this together. Give you a brief context. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the books, the Exodus is sort of the story, not sort of, it is the story of being led out of Egypt. There's some wilderness wanderings in there, but the majority of the wilderness wanderings are captured in the book of Numbers. And then the book of Deuteronomy, the context for the book of Deuteronomy is Moses is camped out and parked on the mountain Nebo. And the nation of Israel is waiting for the first generation to die 
so they can go on into the promised land, crossing the Jordan on dry ground. It's in that context that Moses spoke these words in chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Man, when you start, start to see some connections, it's just beautiful when you see it. In Hebrews chapter 2, don't turn there. Just listen to these passages. They're here because we camped out on them in weeks past. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. It's not just one random reference either. Verse 17 of the same chapter. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We considered together the marvel that, first of all, he would take on flesh, and then second of all, he would call us his brothers. Well, he did that as a fulfillment of what Moses says over here in chapter 18. In chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, God's going to raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. 1,500 years earlier, Jesus fulfills those words by doing that very thing. It is to him you shall listen, he continues. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb or Sinai, those are often used interchangeably, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. <laughs> I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. The context of this passage, what he's referring to is in Exodus chapter 20, after God speaks from heaven, Sinai quakes or Horeb quakes, depending on what you want to call it, the whole nation of Israel has to go change their depends after God speaks. Listen to it. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we'll listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That's what he's referring to here. Remember when God spoke at Sinai and Horeb and it scared you so bad you had to change your drawers? Remember that place? And you begged me to hear from him and share with you. You begged me to hear from him on your behalf. You begged me to speak to you on his behalf. Well, while I did that then and I did that for the last 40 years, there's much more to be said. And there's much more to be done. And a prophet like me is coming to get it done. He continues... In Deuteronomy, he says, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, they may not seem like that really has any application there, but having spent almost 
eight, eight and a half years together in the book of John, when I read those words, listen to them again. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. When I read that, I started thinking to myself, that just sounds so familiar. And the reason it sounds familiar is because these words came from Jesus. Listen to these passages, three different passages among just a few. Or these are just a few among more. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Says it later in verse 24 of the same chapter. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is fulfilling the very thing that Moses prophesied about. A couple chapters later, he's even more explicit about it. In chapter 17, I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. God put the words in this prophet's mouth. And Jesus is making the point over and over and over again. These words are not my own. They came from my father, just like Moses testified they would. Bam. Makes a lot of sense now when you see it connected with Moses' prophecy. And then he ends his words in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I, will, I myself will require it of him. He's speaking of how important the words are going to be from this prophet like Moses to come. I'm hearing that, and that just sounds so familiar with what we've considered in Hebrews already. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's a consistent message in the book of Hebrews to a church who stopped listening. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Chapter 4. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The Hebrews had stopped listening. And he reminds them with this connection to Moses that that's required listening. Moses prophesied about it, and Jesus fulfilled it, and they better not stop listening. Double negative, I guess, for emphasis. Reading this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it's not hard for us to synthesize with other New Testament messages, but I'm going to tell you right now, lazy people won't make those connections. Lazy churches won't bother with those sort of connections. Lazy preachers won't preach those sort of connections, and lazy church members won't engage them and enjoy those sort of connections. Ones that are willing to do the work will see them and they say, man, that's beautiful now. 1,500 years apart, and the New Testament writers, it's part of their being. It's pouring out of their pen. And can we 2,000 years after that enjoy that? We have to. He spoke those words. It's what the Hebrew preacher is trying to stir the Hebrew church up with. So we better hear them. Otherwise, we might stop listening. Moses spoke these words, but you know what else is pretty cool about Moses? He didn't only speak them. He didn't just testify to them. He lived them. Moses lived them. Years ago, 
I don't remember how old I was. My family went on a trip to Dallas. I grew up in central Louisiana. So going to Dallas, that was our, that, you know, that's for us, that's right here. For me, it was our vacation. <laughs> Lame vacation, as you're thinking, but it was our vacation. We went to the Grassy Knoll in Dallas. And I remember as a kid, man, just thinking, somebody got shot here? A president got shot here? I remember taking the whole thing in. And I remember walking through the museum there and seeing a contrast between Abe Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. Anybody remember seeing that years ago? I don't think they have that there anymore because it's been proven bogus. A bunch of the connections that they made between Abe Lincoln and John F. Kennedy weren't even true. It was before the internet, before someone could Snopes or somebody else could prove it wrong. But I remember walking through there and just marveling at that. And as I was watching what Christ did that was so similar to what Moses did, it made me think back to that baloney that I saw as a kid. But listen to these things that Jesus and Moses have in common. Where Moses testified to it with words, but Moses lived it as well. Listen to these things. Jesus was saved from an evil king as a baby, as was Moses was saved from Pharaoh. Jesus spent his early years in Egypt, like Moses. Jesus was called to lead his people out of bondage to the world, as Moses was called to lead his people out of bondage to Egypt. Both defeated their foes, Moses, Pharaoh, and Jesus, Satan. Both were clearly sent by God. That's something we've enjoyed together just recently. Both worked miracles and fed their people with bread from heaven. Think about that for a minute. Fed their people with holy bread. Both spoke with God face to face. All other prophets received revelation by visions or dreams, but these two face to face. Both mediated for their people. Both shepherded their people. Moses led Israel in the wilderness. And Jesus, as the good shepherd, leads his people through the Holy Spirit to our new promised land. Both were humble servants. Moses was noted as the most humble man on the face of the earth. And then listen to these words from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he's fully God. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. So Jesus came along. Both were rejected by their people. Both were criticized by their families. Both went without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses delivered the law, and Jesus fulfilled the law. Both of their faces shone with the glory of the Lord. Moses when he came down from Sinai, and Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Both were zealous for the Father's house. Remember what Moses did when he came down the mountain and they had been worshiping the golden calf? He had a holy tantrum. Remember when Jesus cleared the temple? A holy and righteous tantrum. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness to heal his people, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to heal those who trust in him. You want a sweet family Bible study? Some of you shepherds are like, man, I wish I could find something that's just really contained. Maybe it'd be the first thing that I ever escort my family into, a little Bible study. Study Numbers chapter 21 and see the beauty in that story. The shadow of the substance that is Christ. As Moses sent 12 spies to explore Canaan, so Christ sent 12 apostles to reach the world. This contrast is not exhaustive. It's just a sampling. You could go on and on and on and see that in many ways, Moses' life helps us make sense of Christ's life. That's why it ought to be criminal that someone would pass out a New Testament. You know the little New Testament copies? You know, give you a tract in the New Testament? That's like somebody telling you the punchline of a joke and thinking you're going to get it. I remember years ago, I reading a, I don't know how many years ago at this point, three or four years ago, I was reading a commentary by a guy named Peter Lightheart. And he used the illustration. He's talking about how important the Old Testament is to making sense of the New. He shared a story where he tells a joke to his teenage kids. The joke went something like this. A rabbi, a priest, a doctor, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And the bartender looks up and says, what, am I in a joke? Those of you that have heard a library of rabbi, priest, lawyer, I forget, the doctor jokes, and bartender jokes, someone walking in the bar, you get it. His teenage kids looked at him like they, they didn't get it. And they didn't get it because they didn't have the library. And the reality is, it's all we ever do is preach the New Testament, and all we ever do is pass out New Testament copies, and all we ever do is deal with Christ and never deal with the pre-Christ and the prefiguring in, in Moses and many others, is we're telling people the punchline of a joke and expecting them to get it. And you know what? We recognize it's a punchline by the metric sound of it, so we laugh. But do we really get it? Without Moses' life, without seeing what Moses did for a nation, this is what I was talking about last week. When you see the beauty and the integrity of 1,500 years worth of story, when you see the beauty and integrity of many different authors, I don't care whether you're a believer or not, you've got to marvel at that beauty. Atheists have to marvel at that beauty, even if they don't believe it. It's shocking. To me, it's miraculous. To me, it's faith-building when I see those sort of connections. I see that Christ lived out Moses' story and fulfilled Moses' story so thoroughly. Man, it just makes sense. And it makes the joke funny to use that metaphor. It's a belly laugh for me. Visceral belly laugh that I think equips martyrs, frankly. I don't know if someone would die for their faith if all they ever ate was a New Testament. Wafer thin. When you see the integrity of this 1,500 years worth of testimony from Moses and then lived out in Christ, man, that will, yeah, I'll die for that. That's real. That's legit right there. I'll go to foreign lands. I'll sell everything and go preach Christ in a place where they don't know him. I'll take it to dangerous places. I'll take it to dangerous cubicles. I'll take it to dangerous people because I see the integrity of it. Man, it's a belly laugh. Visceral. Hearing Moses' story, spoken and lived, 
adds new meaning to Peter's words at Pentecost. I read them last week, but I'm going to read them again today. Listen. At the birthday of the church, here's what Peter says. The, the previous chicken of Passover is now the brave preacher of Pentecost. And listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When you see 1,500 years so beautifully testified and lived out and applied in the person of Jesus Christ, then you see definite planning. We saw it last week. A remedy is provided even before judgment's passed on Adam and Eve. In this case, we see it. A remedy is provided and planned for before Moses ever had a diaper change. Man, that's a, that makes me, that's a belly laugh. That's visceral stuff right there. Planning for the true shepherd before Moses was rescued from the Nile. Yes. Yes. That's good medicine right there. The plan for Moses to bear faithful testimony and for Christ to be and fulfill that testimony long before Moses was ever even thunk of. I'm going to tell you right now, seeing how this plan came to fruition over the course of 1,500 years should reassure us that the rest of the plan will come to fruition. Amen? <laughs> seeing that played out that way ought to give us like, oh, yeah, it's coming. We're not reading a fairy tale. It's coming. Listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew Chapter 24, just listen. He says these words concerning the day and the hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They're having a ball, man. Life is good. We're living it up. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and some big old fat raindrops fell on dusty ground. Drip, drip, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Bam. When we read about that sort of application of prophetic speaking and testimony in the personal work of Christ, it should tell us, oh man, he's coming back, and we can trust that as a thief in the night, as he's promised, he's going to come back, and frankly, most will not be ready. They'll be eating and drinking and giving in marriage and laughing and talking and joking. Ha! It's a fairy tale. We read what he fulfilled, and we ought to go, oh, no. It's coming. Moses lived and spoke a blurry vision of what would come into focus later in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Man, Moses lived and spoke a blurry vision of what would come into focus in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Man. Now, what do we do with this? Is this just going to be a nifty Bible study? 
It's kind of neat how Jesus fulfilled so much of what Moses says. That's all going to be just a nifty Bible study. I think it can be a lot more than that if we consider just for a moment the context that Moses was in, the nation of Israel was in, when Moses spoke those words about that prophet like me to come. Deuteronomy, Moses is on Mount Nebo looking over into the promised land. He's looking over into the land that none of the nation of Israel has seen except for the 12 spies. None of them. They've been wandering around for 40 years. And then 400 years before that, they're in slavery. The last person that saw it was in the rearview mirror as Jacob and his family heads off to Goshen so they would survive the famine, and they ended up living in Egypt and becoming slaves in Egypt. Here they are about to go into the promised land. Here they are looking at the older folks and their clocks, and they're looking at Granny and Mom and Dad, and like, they were ready for you to die because we're going to go over into the land where there's houses we didn't build that we get to move into. Cisterns we didn't dig that we get to go drink from. And it's flowing with milk and honey. So while I love you, mom and dad, I'm ready. Man, this is an exciting time. They're about to go into the promised land, the land that was promised to their forefather, Abraham. And Moses says, you know what? I know y'all are excited. You're on the cusp of a new chapter. You're going to go in there. You're going to fit the battle of Jericho. You're going to take this new land. You're going to move into these houses, drink from these cisterns, have some milk and some honey. It's going to be greatness. But you need to know whatever shepherd I've been for you, whatever prophet I've been for you, it's shadow compared to the one that's coming. And as great as you think this is, there's some even better news. I realized as I was preparing for this sermon, how many Sundays present the good news in the backdrop of bad news? You got health issues. You got marriage issues. You got family issues. You've got money issues. You got job issues. Whatever your issues, whatever that bad news is, man, the good news is just medicine for that bad news, right? It is. That's where we go 99% of the time. And then I realized, wait a second. It's the good news even when it's not a backdrop of bad news. It's the best news even when you're in a context of good news. Maybe you're about to get married. Maybe you just got married. You're in your honeymoon period. Maybe you just got a raise or a promotion. Maybe there's one looming where you're like, man, it's going to be greatness. And it's in that context that Moses says, you know what? There's even better news in the good shepherd. The prophet like me that is to come, and in our case has already come, is the best news we will ever enjoy, whatever our context. I needed that. If all he is is the answer to bad news, then what are we any more than consumers if that's all he is? Right? Man, he's not just the answer to bad news. He's the best news even when we're neck deep in good news. <laughs> yes. Now, I was just wondering <clears throat> if there was anybody that's listening. I'm not talking this morning. I think y'all have been listening. I, most of y'all are awake. I'm talking about in the age of Jesus. 
I know Simeon and Anna. I've already mentioned them this morning. I know they were listening. You know, Simeon's heading off to the temple every day. Man, where's your Christ child? Where is he? Lord, don't take me home until I get a chance to see the Christ child. You know, they're, they're anticipating. Was there anybody else? I'm just wondering. And then I read this in John chapter 1. Listen to this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This offspring of Eve is going to go to Galilee. This prophet like me to come is going to go to Galilee. This same one that Moses prophesied about, testified about, that's fulfilled in Jesus, is going to go to Galilee. And he found ordinary Phil, Philip. He's the most ordinary of disciples. When you read about Phil, you're like, man, you are seriously ordinary. There's nothing impressive about him. He doesn't have like a deep understanding of things. You know, he doesn't connect dots real well. He's just the most ordinary apostle, disciple of the whole batch. It's encouraging to me that he goes with ordinary. Jesus called him. He found Philip and he said to him, Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida in the city, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found, watch what happens. He found Nathaniel and he said to him, hey, Nate, check it out. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of, jo- the son of Joseph. I read that with a new set of eyes right now where I'm going, Whoa, wait a second. Ordinary Phil wasn't so ordinary. He wasn't so ordinary that he wasn't looking for the Christ child. In the words of Moses, we found the one that Moses testified about. We found him in Nazareth of all places, the son of Joseph. And I read that, I thought to myself, well, you know what? If ordinary Phil is that attentive, Shouldn't we be? (laughs) Shouldn't we be scouring the pages, looking for Christ in the Old Testament, and then enjoying him this side all the more? Shouldn't we be enjoying the punchline because we've been immersed in the context? As we read these ancient stories, shouldn't we learn to look for our Savior? Shouldn't we pine together with them for an answer to their sin problem? Shouldn't we march one lamb or goat off to the tabernacle or temple after another with Jacob? Aching for a solution and then enjoying it together in the one and final and perfect sacrifice that was and is Jesus. Man, shouldn't we do that? That's what the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church with. Moses testified to the things that were to be spoken later, and Christ became those things. Christ fulfilled those things. Christ became the substance to the blurry shadow that was Moses and his life. Man, if we enjoy that together this morning, that's called worship. If you're doing that right now or you did that in the last few minutes, you just worshiped. That's good medicine. Now, we're going to take the supper together. We're going to shift gears. This will be very brief, but I thought it would be a great application of today. This is Veterans Day. Some of y'all know that. Most of y'all probably know that. As a veteran... I thought maybe I might have a unique perspective to share these thoughts. And I, 
I suspect that most Christian veterans would appreciate what I'm about to say to you. Sometimes it's a practice to make a whole lot of veterans. Sometimes, too, it's almost a practice to equate Christianity with patriotism. And as a veteran, I thought today, you know, I'd like to kind of put things in perspective. I mean, I have a certain amount of pride. I hope it's not like unholy pride, but pride in what I had the chance to do and the the men that I had a chance to serve with. I was in the infantry, so I didn't serve with women. I have a certain amount of pride in that. I remember people's names and faces who are no longer with us that we lost in harm's way or in training that was connected to harm's way, training. I carry all those things into this pulpit this morning. And I remember those sort of things on a day like today. I'm thankful for veterans. I know some of you are veterans, and I had one even this morning said, Happy happy Veterans Day. I appreciate and I enjoy all that. Whenever I served as a young lieutenant, there was one passage that sort of fueled my, um, my job. And it was, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I thought, in a lot of ways, I get to do a picture of what Christ has done for us. You may have heard the stories of a guy jumping on a grenade or taking a bullet for another guy. Those aren't uncommon stories. They happen with uncommon men in uncommon circumstances, but it's happened enough to where it's not a new story. And Medal of Honor recipients, those sort of guys, great stories, and I don't want to diminish their stories one bit. But let me tell you something. There's no Marine, no soldier, no airman, no sailor, that can do what would even come close to what Christ has done for us. Listen to these words from Psalm 49. Truly no man can ransom another. He might be able to jump on a grenade. He might be able to take a bullet. But he can't ransom him. He might be able to postpone what's inevitable for them by taking what would be their due, but no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. This is the psalmist in Psalm 49 saying, man, if only there were a God-man. If only there were a God-man that could do what no man can possibly do, even in his greatest sacrifice. If only there were a God-man that could pay our ransom. As we take the Lord's Supper today on this Veterans Day, let's enjoy our veterans. Let's be thankful for our veterans. But as we take the supper right now, let's enjoy the ultimate veteran that did what nobody else could do, that paid the ransom. It paid the price for our lives. As we take the supper together, let's honor him today. Let's enjoy him together as we dine. Let me pray. Lord God, your son today is our celebration. Your son is the one we want to honor today more than anything. We are thankful for those who have served us as 
service members in some way. But more than anything, Lord, today as we take this meal, we enjoy the ultimate sacrifice that paid the ultimate price for the ultimate ransom, not only for our particular sins, but for the sins of all of those that have known you and will ever know you over the ages. What a shocking sacrifice. We enjoy that today as we take and eat and drink. Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.